Amen, amen. Good morning, everyone. What a great time of worship that we're having. Our God is greater, amen. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Great to sing those lyrics. Uh, We've got an eventful couple of days, don't we? Today being the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday, and then tomorrow is Valentine's Day. You know, it reminds me of a story about true love and football. You guys want to hear a little story about love and football? It's like a love and football weekend. There was a man who had 50-yard line tickets at the Super Bowl. As he sits down, another man comes down and asks if anyone is sitting in the seat next to him. No, he says. The seat is empty. This is incredible, says the man. Who in their right mind would have a seat like this for the Super Bowl and not use it? The first man says, well, actually, the seat belongs to me. I was supposed to come with my wife, but she passed away. This is the first Super Bowl we haven't been together since we got married in 1987. Oh, I am so sorry to hear that, the second man said. That is, that's just terrible. But couldn't you have found someone else, a friend or a relative or even a neighbor to take the seat? The man shakes his head. No, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> Amen. Let's just say that guy really loves football. Uh, Perhaps he had a greater love for football than for his wife. I don't know. Amen. Uh, But we have just started a series on the book of John. Uh, Greater love. I know, yes, that is terrible. That's awful. Uh, We are here, though, because our love for God is not, our love for God is greater than for these other things. We're here to worship God this morning because of his great love for us. Uh, Today, we're going to examine John chapter 2. And John chapter 2, when I looked at it and as I was studying it out and reading it, John chapter 2 is a chapter of change. When we think about things we love, change is usually not at the top of the list, is it? I've heard countless people tell me, I struggle with change. I have a hard time with change. Change is difficult for me. And it's true, change can be difficult, but change also can be helpful and can be healing. John chapter 2 contains two famous stories that we all know, right? Number one, Jesus changing water into wine. We sung a couple of great songs about that, water you turned into wine. And Jesus, in story number two, clears the temple courts. And as I sat there, it's interesting to me to look at these stories side by side, because both stories are tales of transformation. And in one story, Jesus supplies what is lacking, and in the other story, Jesus removes what doesn't belong. But both contain change. You know, we're only one chapter into John, and it's clear that Jesus came to make changes. You know, this holds true today. Whenever Jesus enters the picture, changes ensue. And so let's look at each story and see what we can learn about Jesus and change. Amen? Let's read John 2, verse 1. The Bible says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. 
Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Continuing on in verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So let's look at this story, right? What do we see Jesus doing here? We're only in chapter 2. We've read chapter 1. We get to chapter 2. What is Jesus doing? He is the guest at a wedding. And it's kind of cool to notice that Jesus did normal people stuff. Isn't that kind of cool? Jesus did normal people stuff. He went to weddings. You know, remember that the Gospel of John is emphasizing that Jesus came in the flesh. It was combating false doctrines, saying that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. It's like, no, no, he came in the flesh. He even went to a wedding. Very human thing to do. How many of us have attended a wedding as a guest? By show, like pretty much everybody, right? A lot of us. You know, a lot of us have attended weddings. Jesus was 100% man. He can relate to us. Now, by show of hands, how many of us have been pulled aside during a wedding because the wine ran out, and then we miraculously were asked to create 180 gallons of it? Anybody? Anybody? Going once, going twice? No, right? Probably not very many. None of us. Jesus was 100% God, and he is to be worshipped. He was both normal and supernatural at the same time, and it's incredible. Now, at first glance, there are a number of issues with this passage. You know, people ask, was Jesus disrespectful to his mother? You know, what about, did Jesus change his mind here? Because he said, oh, I'm not going to do it, then he does it. Or not that he did, wasn't going to do it, but, you know, we're just not sure, did he change his mind? Also, why is Jesus making alcohol? Does not he need a license for that? Um, why is this, of all things, the first miracle recorded in the book of John? You know, working backwards, the Bible says that this was not just a miracle. It says it was a sign. What do signs do, Right? To get here, probably we followed some signs. The train says uptown, downtown. A sign points to something. Changing water into wine at a wedding carried great symbolism and great meaning. It demonstrated Jesus' power over the quality of matter, but it was also a direct assault on the pagan gods of the day. The Greco-Roman world had a god of wine in their own pantheon. They had their own god of wine, Dionysus. And Jesus was saying, I am the true God of transformation, not him. You know, when Jesus' mother approaches him, 
you know, we could talk about that aspect for a second. You know, scholars agree he wasn't being disrespectful. This was a very normal way to address a person in that time. And in fact, throughout the Gospels, you see him say, man who appointed me an arbiter between you or woman. This same uh, way that he's saying woman was the way that he talked to his mom and John uh, when he was on the cross and he was putting them together. Woman, here's your son, you know, and, you know, this is your mother. So again, this was not disrespectful. You know, he's reminding her, though, that he is under God's authority, not hers. Jesus didn't allow himself to be pressured by people. And we see it time and time again in the gospel where people try to get him to do things, and Jesus says, no, it's not the time because I'm directed by my Father and not by human people and by their authority. You know, he was focused on God's timing. He was very concerned about the hour. Is this the hour to do this? Clearly, if Jesus' mother had felt disrespected, she wouldn't have transferred authority to him, right? She wouldn't have told the the servants, do whatever he tells you if she felt like, hey, my son is mouthing off to me and he's saying, you know, woman, you know, uh, you know, why do you involve me? She trusted Jesus. The servants trusted Jesus, and it led to a miraculous change. One takeaway from the story is that change takes trust. Change takes trust. We have to trust Jesus enough to do whatever he tells us to do. You know, if there's one thing that you hear from me this morning, it's this idea of do whatever he tells you to do. That is the point of this story. Then and only then will we see change. And I think Jesus's mother is really a great example of trust. Because you see, the story shifts. It goes away from her, and it goes totally to him. She puts authority into his hands. And he was able to fill empty vessels and supply what was lacking. The servants also, they did exactly what Jesus said to do. They didn't talk back to Jesus, right? They didn't say, you know, this isn't how you make wine, Jesus. You need grapes, Jesus. You know, this takes two to three weeks, Jesus. This could take a long time, fermentation, right? They didn't question Jesus. They did what he told them to do, even when it didn't seem to make any sense. You know, I think sometimes we want change, right? You know, we can be like Mary. We can be like at this party, like, hey, the wine has run out. Things are depleted. I'm out of something. But we don't want to do what Jesus says. We don't want to do whatever he tells us to do. We want to do what we want to do, what makes sense to us. What seems logical, it's like we're forgetting he's God, so he could do whatever he wants. You know, we want to do what feels within our comfort zone, and then we get frustrated when aspects of our situation don't change. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you doing what Jesus says? When we trust him, there will be change. And now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's always going to be the exact change that we want. I'm not saying that the change is going to happen in our timing. You know, it may not happen the way we want it to happen. But with Jesus, there is change. Now, I do want to take a minute and encourage all of you. You know, many of you, you guys are incredible. I want to encourage you who day in and day out, you are making righteous choices. You are doing what Jesus says, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even it would be, if it would be easier to do something a different way, not the way he says to do it. And I believe God will bless your faith. And I want to encourage you. You know, whenever we do what Jesus says, God blesses it. 
Now, moving on, the second story in John 2 is the clearing of the temple courts. Let's continue on together in verse 13. The Bible says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. You know, here in this second story, we find Jesus in Jerusalem during Passover. It's about to happen. The Passover is about to happen. And this was a Jewish festival. People would come to Jerusalem from all over to celebrate the Passover and to worship at the temple. There were people traveling from long distances, and those people that were coming from really far away, they could actually buy animals to sacrifice and eat. If you remember barbecue in the Bible, right? They were eating the sacrifices, amen. Uh, And rather than bring the animals long distances with them, you could imagine, right? Can you imagine traveling hundreds of miles or however, you know, tens to hundreds of miles, and you're bringing your animals with you? And so there was actually a way where rather than bringing the animals with them, they could buy it when they got there, you know, exchange money for that thing rather than bringing it all the way. And really, it was meant to lift a burden. While the practice came from a biblical command, it comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 24 through 26, if you want to go back and check and see kind of where it comes from. Uh, While this was really meant to lift a burden, over time, what was meant to remove a burden actually became burdensome for people. You know, the people selling the animals took advantage of the pilgrims. These people were traveling there, and, you know, they had no other place to get an animal from. They had to, they had that one seller, that one person that they could buy those animals from, and so they charged excessive prices for the animals, and it really amounted to profiteering. You know, you ever heard of highway robbery, right? And that was kind of what was going on. It's kind of like, you know, for us today, maybe it's like when you go to like a remote theme park, you ever have this happen to you? Where you go to like a theme park or maybe when you're in the airport and you're kind of stuck there and there's not a lot of options, right? And you've got to buy their food. And because they know that, it's like ridiculously overpriced and it's also terrible, right? And that was kind of what was happening to there on a much grander scale. And think about the significance because it wasn't just taking a plane or riding a, uh, you know, roller coaster. This was actually worshiping God. And it was a great injustice. God was saying, no, this is wrong. You should not be charging extra amount to these people for trying to worship me. Now, along the same vein, the currency that couldn't be used at the temple that had pagan symbols or images on it, and that was, again, from Scripture. And so they actually, you would exchange your money to the appropriate temple currency, something that they would accept that didn't have a certain image on the coin. You know, and again, to bring it into today's world, it's kind of like when you go to an ATM and they charge you like $3.50 just to get money, right? It's basically like you're getting charged. I hate those ATM fees and those kind of things, right? And so it's like they were charging, you know, you to get money, right? It's like, it was crazy. So Jesus comes in and he says, you know, he, it says he was full of zeal for God's house. And the second thing I want to mention, a takeaway from this passage, is that change takes conviction. See, Jesus stood up for those who were being taken advantage of. Jesus stood up for people when he saw injustice being done, people who were treated unfairly. You know, our God is just, 
and our God is concerned with justice. You know, as you know, February is Black History Month, and there are so many examples. I mean, there are just incredible examples of men and women of conviction who stood for change. But today I want to talk about someone who sat for change. Now, we all know the story of Rosa Parks, right? She's been called the mother of the civil rights movement. On December 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, she refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white man. And her arrest led to the Montgomery bus boycott by 17,000 people. You know, it led to change these convictions. And 13 months later, the city was forced to desegregate its buses. But did you know that Rosa Parks' lawyer had gotten the idea of a bus boycott from an incident that had happened nine months earlier that was also in Montgomery, Alabama, and it was another black woman who refused to move to the back of the bus. She was full of conviction, but you know what inspires me about this woman? She was 15 years old. Her name is Claudette Colvin. On her way home from school one day, she was asked to move out of her seat even though she was sitting in a seat that was reserved for black people on the bus, because the policy was that white people always had the priority. And so if there were no more seats in the white section, then people that were sitting in the black section would have to get up and stand. Claudette refused to move, and she was arrested, a teenager with conviction. And while she is in many ways an unsung hero, her actions paved the way for Rosa Parks. And it could be argued, the entire civil rights movement. In the book, Claudette Colvin, First to Keep Her Seat, she recalled, history kept me stuck to my seat. I felt the hand of Harriet Tubman pushing down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth pushing down on the other. You know, what an amazing, inspiring example. And I got to shout out our youth, because as a youth minister, someone who loves the youth and our high school students, I'm amazed that it was a 15-year-old girl who stood up for her convictions and it led to change. You know, it's incredible because another amazing fact about the story is that her lawyer, by the way, his name was Fred Gray. His name is Fred Gray, and he is our brother in Christ. You know, Claudette Colvin, Rosa Parks, Fred Gray, they were filled with conviction about their cause. And it was that conviction that led to change just as Jesus' conviction led to change in the temple courts. You know, I want to circle back to the wedding at Cana in Galilee. You know, and as we close out, you know, at first glance, it can seem a little bit odd, right? Maybe even trivial. You know, I've thought about why did Jesus do this miracle first, this sign first? Why was it at a wedding? Why was it wine of all miracles? Jesus, couldn't you have ended world hunger or, you know, done something? Why did you do this, right? It can seem like, isn't that like a private party or someone's, you know, personal thing that they have going on? Why did you do this, Jesus? And it can seem interesting that he would choose a wedding as the scene of a miracle. However, when you understand some historical context and step back, it makes perfect sense. See, Jesus chooses the scene of a new covenant between a man and a woman to reveal a truth about the new covenant that he came to make. In this story, there are six stone jars, and these were used for purification or ceremonial washing, as the scriptures tell us. And this is where people would wash their hands as they ate when they were coming in. And this was required by the law, and amen for, you know, cleanliness and for wanting to not spread germs. You know, we're in that time, amen. But this sign 
pointed to the very thing that Jesus came to earth to do. The stone jars represent this old system, this old covenant. You know, and Jesus came to transform the old. Jesus was showing that I have come to bring something new out of the old. And that's exactly what he did. Something superior, a new wine, a choice wine. Jesus was pointing to the fact that out of the law, I am going to bring grace. Not a temporary cleansing, but a permanent purification. Maybe this morning you're feeling like an empty stone jar. Maybe you felt like this, like you're running out of what you need, like you're running on empty, like you've already run out. Maybe you feel like you're going through ritual motions, coming to church and doing the Christian thing. You know, we've all been there. And this passage reminds us that Jesus came to transform and to fill, to supply what we lack and to remove what does not belong, our sin. He came to take away our sin and our guilt and to fill us up to the brim with grace. As we take communion together, let's remember the cost of our purification and celebrate like they did at the wedding. Let's celebrate Jesus' great love for us. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God and our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning so thankful for your word. Father, it is so rich and so deep. God, we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his great love for us, Father, for what he has done in sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins. Father, we're grateful that he wants to bring change into our lives. God, we're grateful that you do change us, and we pray and ask that you'll change us, make us like your son. Father, we know that the cross is what gives us the power to change. Thank you for taking away our sin and giving us grace. We love you, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.